Hi, everybody. I'm Kevin O'Donohue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Asima Diane Deemer, licensed massage therapist and trauma specialist. And this is The Positive Mind. Where we bring you some ideas, concepts, and guests to help you lead a more positively-minded life. And a test every now and then. We, we are, are putting on our website, tffpp.org, the Enneagram test for our audience to take and try and locate themselves within this system of personality that Nasima and I have been talking about for the last show for sure. And for the next two shows, we're going to be talking about the Enneagram, which is a personality profile, personality system. And again, it's used as a tool, a tool for you. Do you know your partner's personality? Can you summarize your partner's personality? Do you know what your partner is deeply, deeply frightened of? Do you know your partner's Achilles heel? You know, something they don't know. You know your partner's blind spot. Do you know your own blind spot? Knowing a personality system is kind of like trying to find out what are my blind spots? What are my strengths? What are my good points? What can I grow and build on? What am I missing out on? And more importantly, how to handle other people. You know, in the last show, Nassim, I talked about road rage and, you know, being blindsided in road rage. And then you catch up to the person who does it. It's this old lady behind the wheel. And all of a sudden, your anger goes out the window. Right? You're not going to take, you're not retaliating. So that, I think, is a great example of knowing how easily we can adapt to other people. And the same thing with knowing their personality. Right? That we... Oh, he's just being fixated in his kind of goal-making. So he's somewhere else. He's not really here. Or she's locked into her finding fault with everything and everybody. And and that she's just there today. I don't, you know, stay away. <laughs> you know, or they're, you know, busy being shy and withdrawn. And maybe that's the way they need to be for now. And I don't need to intrude. So in a way, we're we're saying like if you can recognize someone's behavior, and not take it personally, yep. and see their behavior and use it as a way to understand what might be underlying that behavior—the fear, the wound, the the thing that that they need most in the world that they maybe didn't get—and I think it brings on a lot more compassion and understanding um, when you can view the world from a little different lens. A lens of understanding. Yes. And ultimately, this is a tool of compassion. Compassion for yourself, recognizing that these patterns started for me long before I became a conscious person, an adult. These things took hold in an early stage. And now, rather than beat myself up about them, how do I transform them? You know, there's a book called The Transformations of the Enneagram. There are many, many books on this, folks. Enneagram is the word, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. And all of them share the same theory that these patterns that we, these behaviors that we all engage in are things that take root at an early age before self-consciousness, let's say. So now that I'm going to learn about them, how do I apply what I learned compassionately to myself and to everybody else. So that's the tool. That's the purpose of this. So last time we talked about the giver, the person who is always giving and helping people, and that's all they do. 
That seems to be their value, what they value in life, and that's all they're, they're doing. And is your partner like that? Was your mother like that? Was your father like that? I mean, by the way, this is something that men have as well. It's not just people think the giver is always women. And it's not. It's not. Men are givers too. And, you know, they might just do it a different way, but they live to help people and to give to people. And in doing this, they feel like they're earning the attention of others. Like, I'm doing this and now my attention is earned. I've, you know, cleaned the house and made the dinner and now my husband will pay attention to me or my wife will pay attention to me because I have earned their attention. Right. And isn't that sad? Ultimately, right, if that's the way you're functioning in life, that ultimately it's very, very sad. And we don't see it. The number two, especially because they're so heart-based and they have a lot of joy and spontaneity. These are their strengths. Who would want to stop them from giving? But when you think about it, that what's driving this, somebody is saying the only way my husband or my kids or the, you know, the school or my parent-teacher, you know, community or, you know, political organization, the only way they'll accept me is if I give. And at the end of my giving, when I'm all worn out, all right, I've earned it. Now I've earned it. It's kind of sad. Yeah. It's kind of sad. So we want to reverse that. We want to do something with that, and we'll talk about that today. Uh, We did talk about that last show. We're going to go to the number four, right? So you can listen to the old last show, tffpp.org, or on your podcast where you get your podcasts. Let's talk about this interesting character of the individual, Nasima, the number four, the person that's always kind of standing out with the way they look. I mean, they see the world as... Uh, the glass is half empty. There's something missing for these people. And they create their individual and they create their personality around what's missing. So what's missing is a sense of style in life, in the world. So the first thing they'll do is they'll find a unique way to stand out in the way they dress, in their clothing. Um, they're often called the artist because they'll create you know, regular ordinary life is not interesting enough. Um, I need to express myself. I want to create something unique, something different. So they take up the artist uh, position. And I'll fill the emptiness, the half-filled glass, with my artwork. You know, the problem is that these people often feel like they don't have a core of their own. They don't have an identity. And in the books that you'll read, if you do want to read about the Enneagram, they'll they'll say they often felt very alien to their upbringing. Like their parents seemed so different than them that they carved out their personality because, or based on the fact that their parents don't know them. And, you know... They become an individual. Oh, he's an individual, right? He's so different from us. So this is like the black sheep of the family. Yes. The one who stands out, who doesn't fit in, who never felt like they fit in. And they were never really seen as a as a natural sort of, you know, part of the family. That the, the family dynamic didn't have room for them in a way. And in this way, like the attention that they're getting is... Maybe a negative attention of some sort or, um, 
it's just not the right attention. Like it's, they're very delicate in how they see and feel themselves. And if the attention is like, you're not fitting in, they're just going to go the other direction. Uh, you know, the, the trouble with these, no attention that you give them is enough at this point. Right, they're trying to because they carry it with them so often and so long. You know, the giver and the helper, they fill it up with giving, and so they're getting immediate feedback. And the three is achieving and being a success and a star at their career. The four is always nobody's really sees me. Nobody's ever going to fill this void of mine. So, you know, I'll just continue to carve it out on my own. Frequently, the problem is this is the addiction space. This is where people fill that void in themselves with a repeated behavior, taking themselves out of themselves with drugs and substances and whatever. Even television, you know, frequently people who are compulsively television watchers or gamers are fours or people that are very different than their parents, very different than their family. Um, they, they're artists and they're, they're, he's an individual. She's an individual. Yeah. And so in sort of withdrawing from contact, they're getting attention in their withdrawal. Like, like you get attention in being different in being in stepping out of the family. You get attention, you get attention in your family noticing that you're not there, that you're in your room creating something or you're gaming or whatever it is they'll they'll notice you because of the lack of you yes but again it's never enough because on some level these people are never ever gonna sense really sense what it feels like to be me they're often called the romantic right that pathos that sweet sour pain of the romantic um so even if they do try to like appreciate who I am, they're never going to know what it really feels like to be me. So I have to do this on my own. I'm I'm condemned always to feel alone, feel isolated, and the only way to fill it up is to be special, do things that are special. And frequently, the family of this kind of family will not appreciate that anyway. You can go off and be special to other people, but you're just our brother or sister. You you know. There's nothing special here about you. You, but you're our weird brother or sister. <laughs> yes, you can, you can. I wonder. I, I have to figure that out. If the weirdo is called the, the I don't know. It's black sheep. I, I haven't you're come not... across that word in any of the books, so I'm ne- not... I'm not even going to say that. Well, I want to say it's like you're the, you're the one who just doesn't fit in. Yes, on some level. Yeah, and that's really painful. For both the family and the child, I think the child really experiences a lot of pain and not knowing how to belong. So again, I mean, these these people are t- are called um, the artist, the romantic, and naturally they're in touch with the psyche. You know, they're in touch with the unconscious. They're in touch with the fantasy world. They're in touch with creativity. They're really deep, like deep people. Um, they often have a sense of humor. They don't take themselves too seriously because frequently they experience themselves as multiple. They experience, I have many people inside of me. Um, and so I don't take any of them seriously. And their creativity comes out of this multiplicity, this sense of abundance in some ways, but also behind it, a sense of absence. There's a sense of 
who am I in all of these characters that are filling me up? It's hard for me, you know, that's what they suffer from. That's their Achilles heel is there's no real deep sense of self, identity, a core identifying figure. And imagine coming from a family where you feel alien to your family, you're feeling an absence of identity, a core. Right. And I feel like uh, like lacking that sense of what I like to term as center. You know, like what's the center? Like they're getting caught up in the in the storm, in the winds, in the howling. But what is it like to come home and feel centered in yourself? I think a lot of fours have trouble believing that their creativity will still be there if they feel centered to themselves. Like they've identified their creativity so much with the with the chaos and the storms and the and the passing, you know, and everything's mixed up in the storm. Thoughts, emotions, yes. sensations are all mixed up together. And that they feel is the, the, the sort of what you know, where their creativity is coming from when actually they may find a deeper sense of creativity if they find their center. Yes. And we'll talk about that in one second. Um, I want to say something about emotions for these types, because when do we feel most ourselves when we're feeling an emotion? I mean, so for this type, the individual, the romantic, the artist, when I'm feeling an emotion, I am identified with that emotion. There's no separation. And that's a danger for this type of person because feelings come and go, passions come and go. And to be identified with it, you know, is maybe to lose touch with the very fragile self that you actually do have in the first place. So what's even, what's better for them to do is to recognize I am using this emotion. I use my emotion. I do not become identified with my emotion. And I go even a step further. I share that emotion with people. You know, I was enraged yesterday, or I was so happy yesterday, or I was so sad, but not to keep it to yourself, but to share it with somebody. They're called the individualist, but really the challenge is for them to reach out. Right. And uh, another way to sort of differentiate emotion or, and not identify with it is to say the phrase, I'm having the experience of sadness. Okay. And you might sort of pull that apart too a little bit because again, like I said, like they'll they'll mix up thoughts, emotions, and feelings are all together. And these can be separated out. So it's like I'm I'm having the experience of sadness. What does that feel like in my body? What does sadness feel like in my body? Oh, there's a clenching in my throat, the welling in my eyes, a heaviness, a heaving in my chest. Okay. So that's the sensation. And what's the thought that's going with that sadness? Like that I'm not worthy or that somebody, you know, said that what I did wasn't nice. It wasn't beautiful. It mm. wasn't helpful. So like I'm having the thought that I'm not worthy or my work is terrible and I'm having or the I'm not feeling special where I'm not special. I'm having the feeling of sadness and sadness feels like and I'm having the experience of sadness like. A heaviness in my chest, right. like to sort of parse these things out because the overwhelm and the identification comes from the overwhelm. It's like if you're feeling, sensing and emoting at the same time, of course, it's hard to find yourself in the middle of that. So naming it and sort of giving it that sentence, like I'm having the experience of. Okay. Gives a tiny bit of separation. Right. So that's helpful. I want to talk about the not being special part. But before we do that, 
the recommendation in the books, right, or that this type of personality needs to go towards the the settledness, the the, the groundedness of of the the perfectionist, the the person who is, you know, correcting the wrongs in the world. These are the people that are you know very principled. They find standards and principles to live with. Imagine being an artist and without this identity to sort of have multiple selves. How do I ground all this? Well, the recommendation is to go find some principles, some standards that the one has, the perfectionist has, and and use those to ground yourself. So structure becomes very useful to an individual, to a romantic, right? The romantic wants to blow all boundaries and just live by their feelings. And that's, you know, the beauty and destruction of the artist, the romantic. Um, If you want to survive that, find some structure, find some principles, find, um, let's say, ideologies, find something that can guide you from day to day. So find the structure. But I want to talk about the not being special part, because that's really what the the danger is for these people. They try to carve out a sort of specialness to themselves in spite of their sense of lack to compensate for, you know, a lack of sense of self. Let me dress differently. Let me feel special. Let's go into not being special. What's it like to challenge not being special? I was working with a four type and it kind of came to this at one point where there was all this pressure to be special. Yeah. And when I just sort of dropped in, like, maybe you're not that special. There was such a relief in the system. However, there was a real pushback as of well. Course. Because it's like, the truth is none of us are really special. We're all quite ordinary on some level. Our experience is very unique. I don't know what you're talking about. For each about. person. But like... Wouldn't it be cool if, like, we didn't have the pressure of being special, of having to come up with a new thing? Like, think of Madonna. She had to come up with a new thing every year. Right. A new style, a new, you know, just to stay on top and get the attention. Yes. It's a, it can be a relief to stop being an artist, you know, right? You have to reinvent yourself. When do you get tired of reinventing yourself? What if your reinvention is coming out of a lack of something? So frequently, clients become happy. Oh, gosh, I don't have to battle the whole world by being special and creating something special, writing my next book or writing my next song or creating my next masterpiece. Yeah, I can let that go a bit. But it is a struggle. And I disagree with you, Nassim. I think everybody's special. I think people are special. So <laughs> I think these sure people are, are special. And what is this like? Nobody's really that special. Where's that coming from? I challenge that. So anyway, <laughs> I just need to say that. No, they. But I think they everybody's are... unique. Okay. I don't know that that pressure of being special is like moving you out of yourself. Like you are beautiful and unique in your essential self. The neglect of the parents or or the society from really truly supporting you, understanding your essence and who you are. And paying attention to that as opposed to what I think you should be or what's, you know, best for us on some level. That becomes the thing, right? That You say the word essence. The essence of this artist, this individualist, this romantic is joy, 
they are the people that embody joy at the bottom of all this. Unfortunately, it gets tortured and twisted by the need to be special. So let's go on a little journey here. What if I don't have to be special? What does it feel like? Let me go into that. Let me lie down, close my eyes. And what am I when I'm not special? What if I don't have to be special? What is all the work I'm doing to be special? What if I am special? No, 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 I'm not. I have to be special. Stretch it out, go further. I don't have to be special. I can be ordinary. Uh-oh, I'm going to die. I'm dying. I'm going to be ordinary. I'm going to die. So go into that. Go into being ordinary. And what does that feel like? Feel the feelings. Feel the feelings of ordinariness. I might have to be like my parents, those people that were so alien to me. Uh-oh, I don't want to feel that. No, feel that. Feel that. Let yourself feel ordinary. Just paying your bills, living your house, going to bed, eating, waking up, doing those things. Ordinary. No special. Uh-oh. Total dark. Now I'm suffused in this blackness, this darkness. It's taking up all of me. It is everything. This darkness is everything. What's underneath that? Drop in. Drop beyond that. There is something beyond that darkness. It's totally empty. There's a vast emptiness beyond, underneath the darkness. What if I hang out there? No, I can't hang out here. This, this, but it's beautiful. Emptiness. Oh, there's no specialness here. I don't need to be special here. Drop down even more. Here you are. This is where you belong. You're now. What is life? What is the world? What does it feel like to be breathing? A pulsing heart. Feel, you feel your essence. I feel my joy. There is joy here. I am a radiant person. That's where my art comes from. That's where my individuality comes from. That's where my specialness comes from. That's who I am. And that I'm real. Mm. The need to feel real. Like, I am real. I'm, I'm really here. I'm really in a body. And I'm real. And that's enough. And that is good enough. That is all that matters. I'm not unreal trying to prove myself. Trying to get attention. I already am worthy of attention. So I'd like to offer a little more support for that in feeling a sense of center, too. And and I was thinking as you were talking about that structure. So your bones are the structure of your body. And there's one bone that's very easy to feel. It's your sits bones. It's the bottom of your pelvis. As you're sitting on a chair, you feel these two bones. Sometimes they're really uncomfortable. But just to feel those bones because they support your spine, which is the center of your skeleton. And just letting yourself feel those bones and let those bones inform you to the structure of your body. Bones feel real, right? They're, yes. they're firm, they're solid, they're structure. And very often we don't have a sense of our bones in our body. Hmm. And that's just very real and it's very ordinary. Everybody's got bones. <laughs> yes. And we all have these skeletons that we're walking around with. I like that. So, like, 
letting that sense of realness fall into an awareness of your bones. Hmm. So that's beautiful, Nasima. Two, three, the two, three, and four, all heart-centered people, right? All looking for identity, looking for attention, making up for a lack of attention. But all with these essential things, the kindness of the two, the love of the three, and the joy of the four. So let's go on, because now we're going to the troubled spot, <laughs> the five, six, and seven, which is the mind spot. And just think about what it's like to have a mind. Um, all, of, all of the numbers have a mind, but what's it like to live in this mind? Who wants to be there? These numbers, five, six, and seven, live inside their minds their minds are constantly haunting them, pestering them, bothering them. You know, I like to think of the mind as a sort of fireball, just a ball of fire that changes shape and that's, you know, growing and shrinking and growing and shrinking. And it's just you can't hold it. You can't hold it in your hands. It's just unmanageable. And it's a huge amount of energy. And so this is the place of anxiety, right? Anxiety tortures the mind. These folks as children were somehow so scared that they left their bodies and retreated to their minds. Like it was just not safe to be in this body, in this home that I'm growing up in, in this environment that I'm growing up in. So I'm just going to retreat to the mind and my intellect is going to get me through. Right. And you can do that. I mean, everybody does that, right? If you're in a car accident or if you're in, under threat or something, or if you just right now. Picture yourself standing behind you, looking down on you, right? You can do that. The mind can do that. Mm -hmm. And I like that. Yes, that somehow the upbringing home was just threatening. It was just overwhelming. And the mind couldn't figure it out. And so what happens? Your nerves start, your hands shake. And like, uh uh-oh, my hands are shaking. And I can't manage this place. What am I supposed to do? I have to take control of it. You have to get analytical. I have to. Well, that's one way. And, and you know, for the five, well, let me be an observer because I can't be in my body. Let me just observe everything and everyone. I know I need something to survive with. I know I need to have something practical in order to exist in the world to get a salary, pay for my lodging and food. But, but it, life is just way too overwhelmingly scary that I'm not, I'm always going to be on the sidelines observing. And this is called the observer. And they need to have control. This is the only way that they can be in control is to withdraw, be on the outside, and observe. And frequently how this will show up is that they'll become an expert at something. They're often called the experts, right? They find one career, one hobby, one behavior that they'll do and do and do and do and become the best at. So that'll be my survival mechanism. That'll be my way of taming this out-of-control mind of mine. So they have a boundless sort of curiosity about a thing. I mean, take um, mechanics or take stamp collecting or take electricity or take some, take radios, you know, take uh, computers, Take something where their noodle, their head, their mind can, you know, get into the nooks and crannies of 
some field of knowledge and they're just greedy for it. You know, that's the, the vice of these people. They're avarice. They're greedy for more and more information. They can focus for long periods of time. Give them a problem to solve. They can be mathematicians, right? They like tinkering. They like mm-hmm. experimenting with things. They could be chemists, you know. So they have this great mind ability, but there's a fear behind it all. There's a fear that somebody's going to find out I'm not competent. I'm, they're always chasing competence. They're always chasing being the expert. They never feel it. They're constantly afraid. Their mind is always frightened about the thing that they don't know. And so that's in the same, that's kind of the death to them because they're thought to be omniscient. They're pursuing omniscience. They're pursuing like being the expert that the world will call about this one thing. And to not know it all is like a death, you know? So again, I want people to feel this fear that is behind these minds, that mind is a fear-based element in our system. And anxiety is the core of mind, not peace, anxiety. And that the five, this observer type who looks, appears on the outside of parties and just looks to be looking in is tremendously driven by this fear. We're going to take our break. I am Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer. And this is The Positive Mind, and we'll be right back. And we are back. This is The Positive Mind. I am Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer, trauma specialist and licensed massage therapist. And we're talking about personality types. And this five that is an observer in life also has this sort of side personality that's busy sort of gaining knowledge about something, trying to get an expertise in something. So they look like an observer, but then in the background is this private world where they're pursuing kind of omniscience about something. How do we help these people, Nasima? Well, they're really trying to organize safety in their mind somehow. Yes. <laughs> and, and, they, right. and, they, and it's a struggle. And I would like to offer that they – to start to invite them into their bodies because this is a highly dissociated type. In fact, all three of these types we're going to talk about are pretty dissociated. And they don't they, – they've been scared out of their bodies. So – one, you know, technique that I actually wrote about on our blog before, but it's called slow flow. And we can just introduce it by just a little bit of joint movement. These folks tend to be pretty rigid and inflexible. So just letting your hand, you know, move very slowly. We can just start with a hand, maybe moving a finger or two, and just notice the movement of the joints. This is just a way for your nervous system in your body to feel that that you're in the body. You can you can try just clenching your fist, okay. seeing how that feels, right. and then relaxing your fist and see how that feels in your body. What happens in your body when you do that? Like this is just a gentle introduction to this is my body moving through space and this is my body doing some different things. I see that as so useful. So useful. It's sh- shocking how simple it is. 
I remember a therapist I used to work with was saying, take your hand, look at your palm. Just look at your palm when you're dissociated, when you're disoriented, when you're full of passion and full of things that are taking you out of your mind. Just look at the palm of your hand and just yeah. 30 seconds, 20 seconds. What you're doing is just bending the finger. And it sort of, sort of does bring you back into your body, awareness that I have a body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be that simple. And I know that might sound crazy to some people out there. What do you mean awareness? I have a body. <sighs> you you know, but we, we take flight from our body. Our mind it's takes flight. So our easy. heart takes flight. Our anger and our passions can help us take flight from our senses and our body. And just looking at your palm or bending your finger or moving your wrist can make remind you, yes, I have a body. So I really like that. It's terrific. And I'm and I'm kind of here now, and here now is safer than there then. There then wasn't safe, but here now, it's generally hopefully safer than okay. it was then. So let's go to the real dissociated type, the sixth, the doubter, also called the pathfinder, which I like because it's such a positive thing. These people can be innovators. They can create things as well because they're driven by a tremendous sense of fear and doubt and instability, right? And dissociation, like you're saying. What's the nature of the dissociation here, Nasima? Well, their fight-or-flight instinct is just on all the time. They are a live wire. They're ready to, you know, fight or flee at an, any moment's notice. They're on alert, they're maybe hypervigilant. They're someone who's really looking to see where is the danger. Where right. where is it where is it coming from next? You know, they probably grew up in a very chaotic environment, one that just never felt safe. And the idea, even the idea of finding a landing place, of finding home, of finding safety, feeling that is terrifying too. Because it's gotten so coupled together that relaxation and fear are right next to each other and it's hard to differentiate and to find that oh I can land here and be okay and not lose myself they're often called the troubleshooter right they see trouble before it comes they're way out in front you know you'd like them in your army right you'd like them right. to be the lookouts right um they they foresee problems because they're on high alert so, so so often that they're always looking for danger. Do you know types like this? They're, naturally, they would find great comfort in a belief system, like in a guru, if they found a spiritual guide that could temper all of this anxiety, you know, the, all of this vigilance. But, you know, there's always the but, you know, but, yes, but, you know, and so... You know, the emperor has no no clothing. You know, they're often the finders of emperors with no clothing. So they're called the doubter as well. So, But they, they're able to persist. I think their strongest quality is this ability to persevere, Nasima. But, I mean, let's look at this um, hole, this big, huge hole in these people that are surrounded by fear and doubt. This is the core point, like... One of the things about Enneagram, if you're going to read up on it, is like the two, three, and four point, the three is the core point. The five, six, and seven, the six is the core point. The eight, nine, and one, the nine is the core. So this is the core fear point in all of the Enneagram. And so how do we help them? What, 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 just, you know, what, 
let's say go into this fear. Feel ungrounded. Feel unsafe. Just go into this. No wise, just feel it. No security. What's it feel like to drop underneath that or drop into that? And to feel the terror of no support, no guidance, no certainty, no answers. What's, what does it feel like? Go into that. Feel that. And then drop under it. What's underneath that? This vast darkness, this vast pool of beyond space darkness. And what's the feeling there? More terror? Is there still terror there? Um, then go underneath that. And the last, you know, hang out there. Hang into that as long as it takes. And then what's underneath that? And then there's emptiness. There's all this vast, vast emptiness. This, this feels right to me. Somehow this is what, where I come from. And this is home for this personality, this huge, pure emptiness, which is also a place of huge clarity and intelligence. And so this could be, this is the essence for this number, this fear-based person who has to go into their courage, use courage, to get to the core, which is a pure emptiness, a pure intelligence. What a relief, right? Yeah, imagine being with your intelligence and not doubting it. Yes. Ooh, that's such an interesting idea. Imagine. Yes, you can do that. You can have your intelligence and not doubt. What a gift. What a what a re- relief you would think for this person. You mean I can have a mind and not be frightened? I can have a mind and not doubt? I can have a mind that sees and believes in clarity and feels open and spacious and one with intelligence and life i can feel that yes absolutely wonderful so to sort of give a a body work for this i was thinking you know this this point has a lot of anger trapped in it there's there is some they because their fight or flight is online that's activating their anger in a way that's defensive, right? Okay, I'm I'm here. And so I was thinking like stomping. Like what would it be like for this point to stomp and say maybe no, to have a boundary sense because they were probably highly invaded. It's part of the reason why they're feeling so scared. So being able to have a little defensive response that says no, that creates safety in the body in some way. So the stomp is really kind of giving you a sense of ground and that I'm here. And the no is like, give me, you know, I need space. If I'm like that emptiness, I don't want the intrusion. I need some space. But it's not about pushing people away. It's like, I want my space. I need my space in order to feel safe. Another thing that I thought might be helpful, if if they're near or able to engage in pottery 
this sense that my body can help me feel <clears throat> a centering. Centering a lump of clay on a potter's wheel is such an interesting experience to finding a core sense of center that I can, you know, f feel my capacity to, to do. Like I can center this lump of clay. And that's a very physical experience of coming into the body and using the body to do that. Love it. Texture of clay, right? That must be very, very grounding for a, an anxious mind. Yeah, you, you can do stuff with it. You can form it. You can, you can make it bend to your physical will rather than your mental will. Right. And, and the books, you know, all of these books on Enneagram say for, for this type to also, like the three, recognize when you've done something well, when you've finished something. So instead of being always in fight and flight, to actually be in rest and relaxation. They're always looking for the next danger, and they're always preparing for future problems. They're always speculating on insecurity and not being safe. That, like the three, the, they would need to stop and appreciate when they've done things. And also take risks, because this personality can often get confined by their worries that they're not experiencing a lot. It's all in their mind, and so their life can be pretty confined. Take risks. That's one of the things, because you will meet them. That's one thing about this personality. They're much braver than they give themselves credit for, and they're much more capable than they think they are. So that's why I think the stomping and the no are going to be really important to this type, because it's like an experience of like feeling your body and feeling it you know, connect to the ground, and the no is the courage. There's a lot of courage right. to say no. And I think it helps sort of um, you sort of stop all of the all of the voices and all of the uh, sort of maybe mental attack yes. that you're getting. All those doubts. No. You know, I often think of it as like a vapor. It's, it's like, you know, when you take a cake out of the oven and you see the steam rolling off the, the cake. You know, it's kind of like a doubt can come into the six's mind. They're doing just fine, and then all of a sudden this vapor comes towards them, and it takes them over, and you're like, no, I'm not going to be so – and stop, yeah, and stop, stop. And that makes really a lot of sense be to like, me. You're like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to doubt myself today. And so the direction for integration and growth for them is to go towards the peacemaker, right? Make peace with your anger or make peace with your fears and get into some supportive relationships. That's one of the things that doubt can be such an isolator. But get into uh, you know supportive relationships. Go towards people. And nines are really good, good with people. So uh, it also diffuses the worry and trust. People are not going to kill me. <laughs> so right. so right. that's the five and the six in this this mind space. This last one is the most dis. Well, I don't know. You can't say most because. They fear being trapped, the seven person, this hedonist, the person who's going after pleasure all the time, who, who wants to get away from their mind, Nesima. They don't even want to sit still with the mind. Um, they're always uh, looking for the party. They're, where's all the good times to be had? Life is about play. Life is about good times. And I'm not going to be a, an earthly being like the rest of you. I'm I'm going to rise above it all and find where the best party is, you know, where the best opening for the, mu the movie is. And, 
You the know, best restaurant. What is that movie? What is that? Um, You're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. This is this <laughs> character who will right. travel to, um, what is that place that Carly Simon sings about? Anyway, Sarah Nova Tom. Scotia. Nova oh, Scotia. Yeah. To see the total eclipse of the sun. sun right. <laughs> All right. So these sevens are, are these joy seekers. They're pleasure seekers. And they don't want to be trapped into mundane, ordinary life. They don't want ordinary tasks. You know, there's, there's a book on Enneagram and work. And how these types fit in with certain works. These these types don't want to have any authority over them. They'll please the boss, but just don't come and give me orders. So so that's another subject, and we should talk about this at some point. Like there's a book, The Enneagram in Love and Work. And it's a great it, book. It breaks down like what is it like for a, a giver to be married to uh, a doubter? You know, or a, an achiever to be married to um, a challenger. That's a tough one. So these types are just uh, don't want to be told what to do. They'll do the job, but then don't give me many jobs. I don't want just one. Let me do three tasks, boss. You know, so um, what are their strengths? The strengths of these types are that they're very affable. They're very approachable. People feel good around them. And they're the life of the party. They're who everybody is attracted to on some level because they're they're just all about like having a good time and making things happen. They're often called the magical child because they have a magical sense of wonder and they want to explore and experience wonder every day in every moment. They they have a tremendous sense of life's abundance. How who wouldn't want to be around them? Just have fun, play, and be on top of things, and the world is just waiting for me to take advantage of it. They like to multitask. They like multifaceted uh, careers, jobs, um, and they're multitasking. The problem is they, they, they don't finish things, and they're not realistic, right? They, yeah, everything is great at the startup, but what happens when, when things get rough? They get depressed. This is what they really want to avoid. So they're always looking for an escape hatch. They're the number one in the Enneagram that's looking for an escape hatch. They, they're, I guess they have the vigilance of the six. It's always looking for danger. They're always looking for um, when things get rough, how am I going to get out of here? That's why they'll keep two or three things going. They, even in relationships, they can be in relationship, oh, three relationships at one time. Or if they're in a relationship, they don't feel, for 10 years, they don't even feel like they're committed, right? They don't know what commitment feels like. They don't, they protect themselves from not feeling committed. So tremendous, you know, qualities to these people. Um, But there's a tremendous fear as well. The fear is I'm going to be trapped. And so they live their life dissociated by avoiding this fear of being trapped. And this is going to make it very hard for them to be in therapy. Yes, they don't they, go to therapy. These, they, these if types. they do, they go for just a few <laughs> sessions, and then it's like, you're getting too close, I'm going out. To, you know, And maybe, maybe the deal with my, my partner in life is that I go to therapy, so I'll do another therapist and another therapist, and, and we'll keep it on the surface, because the minute you get close to touching on that fear on that pain, on that wound, I'm out of here. Yeah, and so uh, these exercises we've been doing, like this darkness, so feel what it's like to feel 
trapped and feel is stop to all these options and these many, many things. This is like the death to them. And let's go into that. Let's feel that. Go to the edge of being trapped, that there's no way out, and breathe, right? They'll often hyperventilate, just breathe. And I'm trapped. And I'm not going to die, but I am trapped. And take it to the limit and drop in. And what's beneath being trapped? I'm safe. I am safe. It's dark. Vast, vast darkness, but I'm safe. But there's no going on. There's no doing here. What is that like? I'm not doing anything. That's uncomfortable. I'm in this vast darkness. And then underneath that, what's underneath the vast, vast darkness? And underneath that is complete excitement. Wow, there's this vast excitement, this bubbly feeling, this bounty of life. There's tremendous resources here. I'm feeling wonderful here. I'm feeling totally absorbed in life as it really is. And this is me. This is where I am. I'm beneath this fear, beneath this darkness. I am one with all that is. And that's the gift of these magical people. Underneath them is the sense that I am connected to all of life, that I am absorbed. Absorption is my essence. And so I don't have to do 20 different things. I don't have to be part of five different parties or five different women or men. I can feel my absorption in one and in commitment. What about a grounding exercise for this type? Well, I was thinking about this type might really benefit from getting a weighted blanket. I love it. That they have so they can lay down and feel that gentle pressure on their whole body. And it's a it's a it's it's not necessarily specific, but it's just it might help them again feel the unity of their body because again if they're feeling multiple states of being you experience those states within a unified whole body. Yeah. So yeah. the weighted blanket might be a really good thing to take with you in this little meditation of sinking down and in. It could make you feel trapped, <clears throat> right? It could. And I think that's a great thing. It's a non-threatening trap. Exactly. Exactly. In a good way. And you might play with, if you really start to feel, because these people might be subject to claustrophobia a little bit. You can start Indeed. with just laying the, the, the blanket over one part of your body. You can start with just a little bit at a time to begin with. And you can also play with, if you have it over your whole body and you start to feel that trap feeling, feel the impulse to push it away. Let yourself have that little bit of defense to say, away. Hmm. I, I don't feel... want this anymore. And then feel that. Feel like, oh, Okay. Here I am. I'm still whole. I'm still okay. I took the blanket off. And can I still feel my body and feel that I'm okay and that I wasn't trapped? I just had a weighted blanket on me. I love it. It's great. 
And again, for this number, uh, the books say the healing direction is go to the grounding of the perfectionist, the one who has certain principles and standards that they live by, and they follow a particular course and structure. And sevens are scattered often with multiple, multiple things that they're doing and tasks that they're working on, that going in this direction and finding a standard and principle and a commitment to live by can counter this seeking of diversity and variety. And so having a sober approach to life can be very healing. I that, I just want to conclude that what what can we imagine the childhood was like of this person? Right? That this is the this is the place of transitional objects that um Winnicott talks about that this child was suddenly mom was not available, so they developed all these other games and things that absorbed them, that they could lose themselves in. And so they grow up this way. They're doing multitask because they had to do it as children. Yeah, and it might be that things were just so bad at home that they had to find happiness somewhere. So this is like the child who's having a really horrible experience or witnessing something really terrible or is being abused and somehow can kind of dissociate enough to imagine a happier time, okay. a happier place, a happier story. Right. Yeah. The, the, a good version of a seven is Peter Pan. He's in Neverland. Yes, that's true. He goes to Neverland. Right. Something was so bad, I'm just going to go to Neverland. You know, it makes me... Think of it as an antidote to depression. I wonder if sevens are sort of latently depressed. You know, you can imagine like a seven uh, child sitting on the floor and mom is not available, like we've talked about with um, abandonment, abandonment issues um, and attachment issues, right? And I often think of the seven as sitting on the floor, like wanting the nurturing and it not being available. So they're reaching out for toys and playing and that counteracts what would have been if the toys weren't there would be a natural kind of depression. And so they've pulled themselves from that depression by playing with the toys and they've pulled themselves from that lack of nurturance or that stopping of nurturance by their imaginations. Like you're saying, like Peter Pan inventing things, inventing, inventing fantasies. So I also want to say that th- there is a positive for them to go towards the five as well as the one um, because they can start to be a little more analytical about things and be more objective, which the five is known for, these analytic types. So seven going to, to that number is also a help. What fascinating – I wonder what Einstein was. I think he was an eight. We're going to talk about him the next time, eight, nine, and one. Uh, yes, he must have been an eight. But, well, I'm going to investigate that. Because these mind types are just loaded with with fear and anger and energy. You know, the mind is full of energy. And anxiety is a, is just an energy that hasn't found its positive charge, its positive way to go. So um, I'm glad we're ending here, uh, Nasima, talking about this seven who reminds us that life is abundant and that Joy is natural and is a good thing, and absorption in in the world is a good thing. Um, But we have to find ways to get out of this fear that our mind is subject to. 
And if you're curious, you can do the Enneagram test that we are posting on our website, tffpp.org. It's going up right after this program. And we're also going to be teaching an online workshop webinar on the Enneagram. So give us your feedback. Let us know that you're enjoying this, tffpp.org, the foundation for positive psychology.org. Take the Enneagram test and let us know how, how you're reacting to this. So we would like to thank our affiliates, WBDY, KPEJ, WRWK, KAOS, KXCR, KYGT, and also our producer, Connie Shannon, our chief engineer, Jeff Brady. You can contact us, like we said, at thefoundationforpositivepsychology.org, tffpp.org, with your questions, comments, or suggestions for the show. You can also find our podcast on most podcast platforms, The Positive Mind. See you next week, folks. Bye-bye for now.